Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 36 to 45. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortune, de declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray for a brief moment, and we'll get started. Uh, God, we thank you just for this time, and we ask God that you speak to us. Uh, and you know, every, every time we read your word, we declare that this is uh, your word. And even in the prophets, that statement, thus says the Lord, is such a powerful statement and a statement of authority. And uh, with similar kind of authority, God, we ask that you speak into our lives through your word. We ask that you would help us to see uh, not only um, the circumstances of our lives, but maybe even above that, uh, to see with spiritual eyes the promises that you've given to us and that we might uh, hold them into our hearts and claim them uh, as we experience uh, life today and this week and this month and may it lift us up in jesus name we pray amen all right well uh, good morning everybody uh you know we use the word promise a lot uh and you know sometimes it's an everyday discourse or sometimes it's when we're referring to spiritual things and i think we have a sense that promises are important uh, but maybe we haven't really sat down to think about the kind of impact that promises have or can have and really the thing that determines how much stock you put into somebody's promise, it really depends on how much you trust the person who is making that kind of oath. And if you trust the per that the person will keep his or her promise, then it will give you this kind of security because you will live in the present with the anticipation that the promise is going to be fulfilled sometime in the future. And conversely, if you don't trust the person, there's always going to be a certain level of insecurity about uh, the shape of what your future is going to look like. Now, if you think about any kind of legal agreement, uh, let's say like a mortgage, uh, it really is based on this idea of a promise. Uh, the bank is going to lend you enough money to buy a piece of property, and you are making a promise to pay that money back in these small monthly increments with interest. And if you fail to keep that promise, then that agreement is broken. And of course, you face the consequences of that broken agreement. And those consequences are essentially designed to give you this kind of incentive to make sure that you keep those promises. And the level of trust that the bank is supposed to put in your ability to pay back that loan is typically based on a number of factors like your annual income, your credit score, the amount of debt you're carrying, and so forth. And if they deem you to be trustworthy, then what do they do? They lend you money and you can buy whatever home 
uh, I guess, with, is within your range that you want to buy. And conceptually speaking, you know, a mortgage agreement is ultimately rooted in trust and promise. And you'll, you'll find out later, there's actually a reason why I use mortgage agreement as an example. There's a theme of real estate in this message. Now, in the Bible, there is also something called the covenant, which is this kind of agreement that is also rooted in promise and trust. And, you know, one of the major pl plot lines in the Bible is that the people of God violated this covenant that, that God made with them. Uh, with their disobedience and with their idolatry. And what it yielded was judgment and exile. And so God's people are in a period of exile on account of their disobedience, but God doesn't abandon them or leave them without hope. But rather what he does is he gives them words of promise that they can hold on to in the midst of their own self-destruction. And if you think about it, that in itself is a really gracious act of God because without hope, uh, it's, it's really hard to grab hold to meaning or purpose and not to fall into this deep kind of despair. And so even in the midst of sadness and grief, you can have hope. And I would say hope is the most important thing that you need in the midst of sadness and grief, because it allows you to really envision getting out of that darkness uh, to help you endure it while you are in it. And that's why faith is also so important because faith is about trust. You need faith in order to believe that God will do what he says, that God will fulfill his promises and if we believe that, that actually forms and shapes us for the present day. The promises of God will be like sweet honey of encouragement in the midst of a lot of the bitterness that uh, we taste in the midst of you know, discouragement of life. And so what I want to do over the next month, uh, as I mentioned, I think in the last week's sermon, you know, I do get the sense that we could all use some encouragement. And so I think in the next month, what I want to do is I just want to reflect on a couple of the promises of God and consider if I believe this promise to be true, how does it inform, how does it shape my life today? Uh, but what the way I want to start this is um, I want to take a broader look at the importance of promises. And I want to do that by looking at a particularly difficult moment in the life of the prophet Jeremiah and see what it meant for him and for Israel that God made promises during really awful times for the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he is known to be a weeping prophet because he lives through a period in Israel where Israel is in decline and Jerusalem is about to fall to the Babylonians. And the fall of Jerusalem is, it was the most traumatic event for the people of Israel because what they ended up seeing is they saw their temple destroyed and they experienced being exiled from their homes. And the role of the prophet is, you know, it's not the easiest role to fill because, especially in moments of decline, because what the prophet would have to do is the prophet would have to speak the words of God. And uh, these are words of truth. And oftentimes a prophet would have to do it to people in power. So at the start of the chapter of Jeremiah 32, uh, we find Jeremiah is actually imprisoned by King Zedekiah, who is the king of Judah. And the reason he's in prison is not because he committed a crime. The reason he's in prison is because King Zedekiah didn't like Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah prophesied that Jerusalem would be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and uh, which ended up happening. And, the king, and King Zedekiah, and that King Zedekiah would be given to the hand of the king of Babylon. And King Zedekiah was like, I don't like that word. And so Jeremiah was in prison. Now, that's another sign of the decline in terms of the decline of God's people when the king does not want to hear from God, but rather responds by imprisoning Jeremiah, which uh, is essentially equates to silencing God himself. Uh, and he just continues to do what is right in his own eyes. Then God gives Jeremiah a really, really strange word while he is in prison. God says to Jeremiah, you know, your cousin 
Hanamel is going to come to you and say, buy my field, right? And so Jeremiah does what God wants him to do, and he buys this piece of real estate. But here's a catch. The field is in a city that is about to be taken over by the Chaldeans. So uh, if you look at it from a perspective of an investor, this is a very bad investment to make. When you buy a piece of real estate, you want it to appreciate in value, or at the very least, you want it to maintain some of its value. But for Jeremiah to spend his money on a field that is about to be lost to the Chaldeans, it's a very poor decision to make from an investor's perspective. And so Jeremiah, he's understandably perplexed and confused as to why God is saying, buy this field, and he starts to pray. And he says to God, God, you made this world. You brought your people out of Egypt. You gave your people this land. Your people did not obey you, and so you said you are going to bring disaster upon your people. There is a siege that is mounting, and you said Jerusalem will fall. You said it, and I believe that what you spoke will come to pass. So why are you telling me to buy this field now, right? And this passage is that we just read. This passage is a portion of God's response to Jeremiah's prayer about buying this field. Now, prophets, they are known to do some really strange things. Uh, Isaiah, he walks around naked for three years. Hosea marries a prostitute. Ezekiel has to eat food that's baked on human dung. And, you know, I guess maybe compared to that, making a poor real estate investment doesn't sound all that bad. But the prophets do these kinds of strange things for a reason. They are symbolic acts, and they illustrate a message that God has for his people. And so what is buying a field in a city that is about to be under siege? What does that illustrate? What is God trying to illustrate through that prophetic act? And the answer is pretty simple. It, it illustrates hope. Yes, things will get bad here in Jerusalem, but it won't be bad forever. God promises in verse 37, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. In other words, the people won't be in exile forever. There will be a day of restoration and peace again. And Jeremiah's purchase of this land is a symbolic way uh, to communicate God's promise and the hope that comes with it. Now, uh, I don't know how many of you saw this. Uh, this I think this was like, um, I don't know, this was on social media and things, uh, especially from New Yorkers. But uh, there was this LinkedIn post by uh, this guy named James Altucher, who's an investor, he's, he's an author, he hosts a podcast. And the title of this post was, New York City is Dead Forever. Here's why. And, you know, it got a lot of attention from a lot of people. And in this post, he lists all kinds of reasons why he thinks New York City is dead. Uh, he talks about how there's this first wave of people that left when the pandemic hit. And then the second wave, a second wave of people left when uh, all these protests and rioting started to happen. And then some people left initially left temporarily, but then they made a decision to make that temporary move permanent. And then he talks about how all of his favorite restaurants have closed down, how there's no more cultural attractions to draw people anymore. And if you read that post, it's, it's a really a bit of a downer, especially if you're someone who loves New York City. But then in response, Jerry Seinfeld, right, another uh, Jeremiah, I guess, so to speak, I think his actual, actual name is Jerome, but Jerry Seinfeld, he writes this column in the New York Times, and he responds to this blog post in a piece entitled, so you think New York is dead? And then in parentheses, it's not. And you know, it's a, it was really, really inspiring piece to read if you love New York because he gives a lot of words of hope. And he talks about how special New York is and how he will never abandon the city that he loves so dearly. 
And Seinfeld, he ends his opinion piece by saying, and I cleaned up the language a little bit, uh, the virus will give up eventually, the same way you have, referring to James Altucher. We're going to keep going with New York City if that's all right with you. And it will surely be back because of all the real tough New Yorkers who, unlike you, loved it and understood it, stayed and rebuilt it. See you at the club. And that's how he ends his piece. And when you read that, you know, it's really refreshing to hear uh, someone like Jerry Seinfeld, his commitment to New York City, especially in light of the negativity others have been saying about uh, the state of New York. And Seinfeld is basically saying New York will be back and it will be rebuilt and it will go back to being a great city because there is no place like New York. There are no cities with the same kind of energy like New York. And, you know, there's other people who chimed in. Uh, Mark Cuban chimed in and he said, nope, I'm looking to invest. And he says, New York will be younger and vibrant in a few short years. So again, if you love New York, those are encouraging words to hear. Now in verse 43, what are people saying about Jerusalem? They're saying this, right? Quote, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And what is God's response in the very next verse in verse 44? He says, Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. You see, when Jeremiah buys a field, it's a symbolic and prophetic act that God would eventually restore the fortunes of this city. It's one thing to have people like Jerry Seinfeld and Mark Cuban who, you know, have a lot of influence, have a lot of money um, to say that they're going to invest in New York City and say the city will be prosperous again. But you know what? It's another thing for God to give a word of promise through this prophetic act of Jeremiah and say the fortunes of Jerusalem will be restored again. And, you know, these words of promise are all that is really required to sanctify the imagination of the people of God and to fill them with uh, hope as they endure these traumatic events, this traumatic season in their people's history. Now, by the way, New York is not the only one that's going through a difficult uh, season, but there's, of course, other cities at the moment that are going through some trials, especially in the Northwest. You know, on the West Coast, you see all the pictures of, you know, the wildfires uh, burning down homes and burning down neighborhoods. You know, if you read about the destruction of the temple in the final chapter in Jeremiah, you know, it's a really sad, sad chapter, but that's actually probably closer to what it felt like to seeing the temple destroyed, right? The temple was burned down, it says. The king's house was burned down. Every great house was burned down. And the city is literally on fire after the siege of Babylon. And all that God had given to them and all that they had built up is burning to the ground. And how do you get through that? For the people of God, it's by holding on to his promises. Now, what are some of these promises that God makes? Well, uh, to follow <clears throat> that, we just simply have to look at the phrases in our passage that starts with, I will. What does God say? He says, I will gather them from all the countries. I will bring them back to this place. I will give them one heart and one way. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land. I will restore their fortunes. Imagine being uh, an Israelite uh, going through seasons like that and being able to refer to those promises 
the things that God says he will do for his people. Now, if you continue to read the next chapter in chapter 33, God continues to make more promises, right? And I think one of the most beautiful pictures starts in chapter 33, verse 10, and it has to do with their voices. Now, during the pandemic, I think one of the things that stands out that's different about pre-pandemic times is uh, the lack of noise. So, you know, when, uh, not so much these days, but at the height of the pandemic, and if you were to go out into the streets of New York, it was kind of strange because it was much quieter than what you're used to uh, feeling in New York City. Or if you watched uh, sports events, uh, maybe not for us who are watching on TV, but I'm sure for the players who are playing in the game, the lack of crowds and crowd noise is probably a really strange and eerie thing. You know, the lack of noise is one of the things that is indicative of a city that is desolate. But God says, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of bride, the voice of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, the return of voices of mirth and gladness, what is that? That's a picture of restoration of the fortunes of Israel. To envision a desolate land emptied of most of its people, to envision that start to fill up with sounds of gladness, sounds of laughter, sounds of singing praises to God, it really is a beautiful picture of what God intends for his people. Now, I don't know how, many, uh, how, how the people of God would have made it for 70 years in exile without these pictures, without these prophetic words, without this prophetic act that communicates the promises of God for them, that filled them with hope. But, you know, as important as the physical land was, um, you know, as, as New Testament Christians, we probably shouldn't dwell on the land too much because the land is actually only as good as the relationship. You see, the restoration of their fortune in the land ultimately derives from a right relationship with God. And if you look at the first half of our passage, you know, the majority of those promises, it has to do with relationship, right? He says that they will be his people and he will be their God. He promises to give them one heart so that they would fear him forever. And of course, the fears of the Lord is not something that's uh, supposed to scare them or terrify them in terms of the prospect of being destroyed. But the fear of the Lord is a kind of deep awe and reverence that uh, we're supposed to have for who God is. And according to the Proverbs, it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and it is expressed through a heart of obedience. But perhaps greater than these things, God makes a promise regarding the covenant. God promises to make an everlasting covenant. You know, the nature of covenant, it's, it's only as valid as long as both parties are faithful to the promises that they've made, to the oaths that they've made to be faithful to this covenant. And of course, God has kept his promises, but Israel has failed to keep hers. And so the question is, how would God make an everlasting covenant? That covenant only comes by way of a new covenant. And if you read Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, it talks about why this new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Uh, the author of Hebrews also actually draws from Jeremiah the prophet to make that point, And he refers to Jeremiah chapter 31, where it talks about how God would establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And God would fulfill those the promises of a new covenant, uh, not with the obedience of Israel, 
but with something much more secure in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. See, Hebrews 8.6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, you know what that means. As good as Jeremiah's words would have been to the exiles in Israel about the restoration of a desolate land, about uh, the future rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, and as good as it is maybe for us as modern-day uh, people who you know, love New York City to hear Jerry Seinfeld's words, um, they really do pale in comparison to the promises that God gives, uh, not just to the people of Israel, but actually climatically the promises that he gives in the person of Jesus Christ in this new covenant, which the author of Hebrews says are much, much better promises. And of course, we'll explore some of those promises uh, in future messages. But I want to make this uh, one final point about the importance of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, this sermon has had this theme of real estate because of what God told Jeremiah to do. And I want to conclude on a similar theme. You know, when you buy a piece of real estate, uh, oftentimes you're supposed to give a down payment. And the idea is the bigger your down payment, then the more you are invested in the property and the less likely you are going to default on your loan. And uh, Paul uses the concept of a down payment, and he applies it to the giving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about how even though our earthly home is destroyed, we have a heavenly dwelling that we are waiting for. And knowing this, we can be of good courage because we know what awaits us. But how do we really know that? How can we be uh, more secure in that truth, in that reality? And Paul says this, God has given us the Spirit as a down payment. Uh, some translations translate it as guarantee, but it's the same idea. God has proven that he has invested in his people so much so that not, not only did he give us Jesus Christ crucified on a cross, but he has also given us his spirit who dwells within our hearts. And when we receive his spirit, we also receive the assurance, uh, the guarantee of his promises that what he says will come to fruition and those promises we can claim in the day of trouble. And those promises are what give us hope and security so that we don't have to live in fear. But as Paul says, we can be of good courage. You know, a few months ago, uh, I was talking to another pastor in New York. And, uh, you know, it was, it was the height of the outbreak and we we're just kind of texting each other. And, <clears throat> you know, we were talking about how grim things were looking because, you know, so many people were dying and so many people were getting sick. But not only that, you know, so many people were actually leaving New York and uh, we saw businesses uh, closing down and people were losing employment. And, you know, there's like a whole bunch of you know negative things that were happening. But as we were kind of just texting, we were at the same time, we, we both felt this strange sense of hope because it felt like God was in the midst of doing something. And as I said last week, I, I do feel like God is shaking things up for a purpose and for his church specifically. And, uh, you know, we thought if there's ever a time to really uh, buckle down and commit to ministry in New York City uh, and get ready for the long haul, uh, that time is now. Now, if Seinfeld is right, and if New York will go through a season of rebuilding, how great would it be if the people of God remain to be part of what God might be doing here in New York? Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean it would be easy. There's a lot of challenges and a lot of hardships and uh, those of you who have uh, kids in school and uh, you know dealing with uh, uh, 
you know, schools reopening and the Department of Education and those kinds of things, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy, of course, to stay in a place like New York City. Um, but if anybody could do it, it should be God's people. And not because God's people are better, <laughs> not because God's people, um, you know, have a better uh, threshold, I guess. But God's people should have the better resources. Why? Because we have the promises of God. And it's simple as that. And when we have the promises of God and we claim those promises to be true, we actually have a security that is eternal. We have a security that is grounded in an everlasting covenant that even death itself cannot destroy us because there is a promise of a resurrection and a new life. And so um, in this season, uh, as I said, I know everybody's going through stuff and it's not exactly the easiest time uh, to be uh, you know, to be living in 2020. Uh, but because of that, maybe we can think about uh, the Israelites and those 70 years in exile and the importance of really holding on to the promises of God and claiming them and deriving our ultimate hope in them. That's what I uh, hope to talk about maybe in the next month or so. We'll see. Let's pray.